I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 this morning. Following on the opening section of this chapter where we, verse 1, we saw the, well, we, we heard the, t- the sound of silence. We follow that up as the last seal was being broken by the Lamb, now with the beginning of the sound of the trumpets. So we'll just be looking at the first four trumpets, uh, taking us to the end of the chapter, actually just before the end of the chapter, verse 12. But there's two fundamental truths about the world to keep in mind as we begin here. First of all, God created everything good. Secondly, sin has corrupted everything. God created everything good, but sin has corrupted everything. Without that understanding, much of life is nonsense. There's many alternative interpretations of this world, but none of them make full sense. This explains why our desires are so often at odds with what is truly good and best for us. Man has fallen into an estate of sin and misery that the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 18 defines as the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature. So three things that define, it says, which is commonly called original sin. You have the guilt of Adam's first sin that is imputed to us, right, as, as his children. The guilt of Adam's first sin is given to us from birth. And the want of original righteousness, we have a desire to be something that we cannot be, or we lack that original righteousness that that Adam and Eve had, right, in their neutrality, right? They they possessed that. There was nothing sinful in them, but we don't have that. We lack that. We want it. We have a want of original righteousness, and thirdly, the corruption of his whole nature. It's not just a portion of us. It's not just our Our um, minds that are corrupt, our will is corrupt, our affections are corrupt. Every part of us, every aspect of our being has been corrupted by sin. Because man has been created in the image of God, we have desires that we cannot satisfy in this life due to sin, due to the corruption of sin. So what God creates out of his goodness, we might say man decreates out of his sinfulness. What God creates out of his goodness, man decreates out of his sinfulness. How our deepest longings can be satisfied in light of our ongoing fight against sin is the puzzle that can only be solved by Christianity. Corruption cannot simply be wiped away. It must be judged. It can't just be swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with. If God is just then he must punish every sinful word, every sinful deed, every sinful thought, everything tainted by sin, everything that's been corrupted must be judged. And so this is where the sound of the trumpets is relevant. But before we read this this passage and discuss the trumpets, let's just recap a, a, a little bit of what we've said so far, just in broad strokes Revelation 1 through the first part of 8. We talked about the structure of the book of Revelation being very significant for interpretation. 
it's, it's often assumed that when we read a passage or we read a book like this, we should read it chronologically in order as if we're imagining a timeline that starts at the beginning and ends at the end of the book. Right? So it's displaying all these events in chronological order. But if you read Revelation like that, you'll be quite confused and you'll be reading it wrong, frankly. <laughs> I mean, some people try to do that and they have to really, instead of being chronological, we should read Revelation cyclical as, as cycling back through the same kinds of judgments from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls. All of it is portraying events of judgment that are taking place throughout this present age. And right? so each cycle provides greater detail of the last days. It's, it's using different language in each one, similar themes, but different language so that we have more, a fuller picture, a fuller uh, display of the last days. So the first three chapters of Revelation, the primary focus of that was the letters to the seven churches. Remember, chapter one gives this vision of the Son of Man prepared to come in judgment, and then he dictates the letters that John was to write to these seven churches. And in fact, the, it wasn't just the letter that he was sending to them, it was the entire revelation, the entire book that he was to send to each of those churches. And we said there were more than seven churches, even in Asia Minor. There were more churches that could have received that letter. The point wasn't that, that those seven churches, this is only a message for them, it's only a message for those uh, particular people. No, it's a message for the entire church, and seven is used symbolically to speak of uh, the number of completeness, right? completion. And so he was writing to uh, the complete universal church, which means this book is relevant to us too. As we read it, we're reading about things, events, that are taking place even in our own time. Uh, verses or chapters four through eight, we began to talk about the seven seals. Well, actually, you know, the seven seals begin in chapter six, but that's sort of the primary focus of those chapters. The chapters four and five, though, before you get there, just like you have the seven letters that follow the vision of the Son of Man, before you get to the breaking of the seven seals that opens up the scroll, you have this vision of the throne room in heaven, right, where you have this glorious picture of 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 God on his throne, surrounded by four living creatures and 24 elders and myriads of angels. And it's this magnificent display of gemstones and, and lightning and thunder and fire. And, and it's all reflecting God's presence, his glory. And so John is seeing this picture of heaven, and then it enters into the judgment of the seven seals. And so last week, we concluded that section of the seals uh, the opening of the seventh seal, where there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And during that time, the prayers of the saints ascended to God. And then the section concluded with the final judgment. Chapter 8, verse 5. Remember, we start, the, the peals of thunder, the rumblings, the flashes of lightning and, and earthquake. And we'll see that same language used multiple times later on, and we've already seen it before, emanating from the throne of God. It's always a picture of God's judgment being flashing, flashing forth, right? going out into the world. So before we read this passage, let's ask, for the Lord, ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for revelation. It is a challenging book, and it has confused many, and 
Yet we need to keep in mind that big picture, Lord, that, that it is displaying the victory of the lamb who was slain, that it is time and time again pointing us to your sovereign power and your glory and redemption. So Lord, help us to appreciate that. Even as we consider the, the judgment trumpet, uh, the trumpets of judgment in this passage, Lord, help us to recognize that this is ultimately pointing us to what must be done in order to provide a purified people who will worship you for all eternity, face to face, no longer restrained by sin and corruption. Lord, may that be our hope even now. We ask you to open our eyes to give us ears to hear, soften our hearts, prepare us to receive this message, Lord. By your spirit, speak to us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me. Revelation chapter 8, verses 6 through 12. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And the third and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, Verse 13 we'll use as an introduction because it's, it's really introducing the woes that follow in the next three trumpets. So we'll stop there at verse 12. But the first thing, if you're following along in your outline, that I want to consider is the purpose of the trumpets. What is the purpose of these trumpets? We read in verse 6 that the seven angels who had, we, we saw received the trumpets back in verse 2. Those angels are now prepared to blow them. What does blowing trumpets mean in Scripture? Why do they do that? Well, trumpets were used by musicians to accompany choirs. That's, that's probably one of the more minor uses of trumpets, at least in Scripture, that you find. Whenever a trumpet is, is being described or, or being blown, rarely does it refer to music, but it, but it does have that use. Uh, we also see city officials, this might be the primary use of trumpets, that where city officials are making an announcement. They blow the trumpet in order to declare some decree, to get everyone's attention, to make an announcement. But then there's also this uh, use by military officers. And I think that's where it's most relevant in this passage, uh, where military officers use them to signal the beginning of war. Jeremiah. Chapter 4, verse 19, they gather the troops for battle as Gideon did in Judges chapter 6, verse 34. Uh, he warns of a pending attack um, 
or, or trumpets warn of a pending attack like the prophet Ezekiel describes in chapter 33 and also the prophet Joel in Joel 2. So what we have here with the trumpets is God calling the church militant, the church on earth, to prayerfully endure and prepare for the witness, uh, prepare as they witness the, the judgment that is going to fall upon the earth. It's calling, God is calling by these trumpets, the church militant, to prayerfully endure this season. And as I've already said, I believe that these seals and trumpets and bowls, they depict events that occur between Christ's first and second coming. It's in this entire church age. And so the church is always to be a praying church. The church is always to be asking God for the endurance, the strength, to make it through every trial that we face, especially the persecution that comes from the world. But as we describe the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the judgments, it's not as if they're using identical language. They're coming from a different perspective. So Derek Thomas says, the opening of the seals brings great consolation to the people of God. Remember, the people of God are seen under the altar in heaven, praying, asking for God, when, how long will, it, will you Terry, how long will you wait to bring vengeance upon our persecutors? They've been martyred, they've been slain, and they're waiting for God's vengeance, and they're praying for that. They're crying out for him to end the persecution of, of his church. Right? And so when, when the seals are being opened, God is answering that prayer. God is bringing judgment upon those who stand opposed to him. And so it brings consolation to the people. Right? Derek Thomas says, the opening of the seals brings great consolation to the people of God. The sounding of the trumpets brings great woes upon those who are not the people of God. Instead of consoling the people of God, this is now from the perspective of unbelievers and what those same judgments bring upon them. It is, it is a, a time of woe. So many interpret the trumpets as a warning, but, but I think that fails to see the connection between this passage and the plagues that are recorded in Exodus. Most of the trumpets that we read about allude to one of the plagues that fell upon Egypt. Um, God sent the plagues in order, we read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, in order to harden Pharaoh's heart. He very, before he sends any of the plagues, he says specifically, he tells Moses, I am going to send these plagues upon Egypt in order to harden Pharaoh's heart and to reveal his own glory. Um, Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, describes this. We read this. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is God speaking. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. You know, plague after plague, he'll, his heart will continue to harden. Then... I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The plagues are great acts of judgment falling upon Egypt. And then in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So you see the purposes of the plague there was to judge Egypt, but also to show God's sovereign power over the Egyptians, over every nation, 
but especially the Egyptians, right, who had held uh, Israel in bondage. And so it was a, it was a means of judging them. It wasn't, it wasn't that the plagues were meant to bring Pharaoh to repentance. That wasn't the purpose of the plagues. It wasn't so that Pharaoh would turn away from it. It was, in fact, to harden Pharaoh and to bring glory to God as he, time after time, reveals his power over nature. And in fact, much of the plagues, and as we see in the trumpets, uh, they, they describe events and, thing, and, and um, things happening to nature that were oftentimes worshipped as gods by the Egyptians. So he's rebuking their own idolatry in the way that he is, that he is bringing judgment upon them. So all who observed or experienced the impact of the plagues would know that, God, that the God of Israel was the true sovereign. Again, the plagues were not meant to bring Pharaoh to repentance, but to harden his heart and to d- display God's sovereign power. Now, in saying that, Pharaoh was still responsible for his actions. Pharaoh hardened his heart too. Right? But God was not disappointed as if he didn't expect that in Pharaoh's refusal to repent. Right? Everything happened according to God's plan. And so the plagues were more judgment than warning, just like the trumpets of Revelation. They are judgment more than they are warning. And this leads us to the impact of the trumpets, verses 7 through 12 in your outline, the impact of the trumpets. So several of the seals portrayed a limited devastation. Um, as we were opening the seals in, in 6, uh, you have the description of the famine that is coming in the third seal. And that famine was a limited famine. Right? It was only a, it was only par- a partial famine, if you will. Um, The same thing again in verse 8 where it says, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. And we describe that fourth seal as really a summary of all the the first three seals um, as judgments that are are carried out. But but they're limited. It's only limited uh, upon the earth. You can't destroy everything. These judgments that are taking place are limited in their devastation. Well, we'll see the same thing with the trumpets, but instead of it being a quarter... There Now it's a third. There's an escalation of the intensity of the judgment. So in verse 7, you have a third of the earth being described as being judged. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So God sends hail, fire, and blood upon the earth, and it scorches a third of the land, a third of the trees, and a third of, or not a third, it scorches all of the grass of the earth. Well, the seventh plague that fell upon the Egyptians was one of hail and fire, which burned up the vegetation and the trees, according to Exodus chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. So the allusion to Exodus causes some to anticipate a literal fulfillment to this first trumpet that clearly has not occurred yet. So if we're describing events that take place between the first and second coming, we'd at least have to say, well, this first trumpet, it must be describing something that we haven't seen yet because it is, it, we, we still haven't seen a third of the earth destroyed. We haven't seen all of the grass scorched, although here you might think that's true. I mean, our, our grass is certainly scorched. But, but that's not true of everyone, right? Our neighbor still has green grass. So 
the allusion to Exodus does cause many to think of this as a literal fulfillment. And it was literally fulfilled in Exodus. But to answer the question, you have to remember the difference between historical narrative and apocalyptic literature. Prophecy cannot be interpreted in the same way that you interpret historical narrative. The most common word in this passage is a third. You heard me say that 14 times as I was reading. It says a third, and most likely that's due to the influence of Ezekiel chapter 5. In Ezekiel 5, Israel is called to, or, um, Ezekiel is called to divide into thirds. Uh, repar- he's to shave his head and all of the hair on his body. He's to take all of that hair, this, imagine a big pile of hair. I don't know how hairy Ezekiel was, but he would have had to take all of that hair. And then it even says to take his scales. So now you can picture this scale, right? And he's to take portions of the hair and get equal portions and divide it up into thirds, into a third, so that a third of his hair would be used for one thing, a third of his hair would be used for another, and a third of it would be used for another. And then it describes what he's to do. He's to take a third of it, and he's to burn it. He's to scorch it. The other third, he's to strike with a sword. That could look awkward, right, if anyone was witnessing him take a sword to his hair, but that's what he's doing. He's chopping up his hair even more with his sword. Then he takes the other third, and he, and he scatters it in the wind. He, blow, he just scatters it in the wind, and he's to do all this openly so that the people of Israel could see him. And certainly, they were probably laughing and mocking him, and yet it was a description of what they were about to face, the judgment that was coming upon them. Because a third of them, it says, would be burned up. And then it describes what what it means by that in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 12. The physical demonstration of what uh, Ezekiel was doing was fulfilled when Israel suffered pestilence, famine, death, and scattering during the Babylonian invasion. So when Babylon came in and sent them into exile, the way that 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 vision or that illustration, that physical demonstration was fulfilled, was figurative. They were to experience famine and devastation and death by sword, and also a scattering throughout the region, as Babylon would do that to them. So notice, the the portion of Israel that was burned up literally suffered from famine. It's not a literal fire, but a figurative symbol of judgment. We just read in chapter 6 the same thing of of a famine. And when the third seal was opened, what were they expected to experience? It was famine, a partial famine. So you're seeing the same kinds of things taking place here with the trumpets. The famine that's described in figurative language may represent a literal famine. It it may also just represent, in general, intense suffering. Both are things that have taken place throughout this present age. People are continuing to suffer from famine, and of course, everyone experiences intense suffering of various kinds. Later on in Ezekiel, you also have a parallel with Ezekiel 38, verse 22, where he describes the defeat of Gog as raining upon the nation blood, hailstones, and fire. I mean, very obvious parallel with with this trumpet. 
Gog would be defeated by the rain of blood, hailstones, and fire. And it describes this ongoing battle that will not reach its conclusion until the end of the age. Again, it's, it's military language. It's the church being gathered together as the church militant, ready to fight against, against powers, right? Against religious powers and spiritual powers. So it describes this ongoing battle that will not reach its conclusion until the end of the age. Again, the, the apocalyptic language is not meant to convey literal fire from heaven that's going to descend upon Gog, but the crushing defeat of all who stand opposed to God in a partial sense now and in a full sense when Christ returns. So that's the idea of only being a third. It's a partial judgment. It's partial judgment and it's repeated judgment throughout this age. Okay, so that's the first trumpet. Each one will go a little bit faster after this. But the third or the second judgment of the trumpets is, uh, affects a third of the sea in verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the sea, of the sea ships were destroyed, or a third of the ships were destroyed. So here, a fiery mountain is described as being thrown into the sea, during uh, which turns a third of the sea into blood, killing a third of the sea creatures and destroying a third of the ships. Again, similar to the first plague in Egypt, Moses literally put his staff in the Nile and it turned to blood. So should we interpret this literally? Well, many preterists and post-millennialists have argued that this was fulfilled during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. Remember, you'd have to go back to the introduction of, of Revelation to understand what I'm talking about if this is confusing, but... But there's different, the, there's different views of how to interpret Revelation, and preterists and postmillennials view most of these judgments as all happening in that first century. They would say none of this really is, is happening today um, in the same sense, right? It's, it, it happened in that first century. It's done with. Well, so for them, they would point the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 as the fulfillment of this, and it would make sense because, right, you have the symbolism of, of a volcanic eruption, uh, the, the lava representing the blood that's filtering into the, into the sea. And yet, as devastating as the, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius was to Pompeii, Pompeii was buried in the ashes of the volcano, it doesn't come anywhere near to destroying a third of the sea. Right? It's nowhere near the devastation that is described here. And so if it were plausible to interpret it in that way in a, in, in, as, a, as a volcanic eruption, then I would say you have to have multiple manifestations of that same thing happening. And you do see that throughout history, but that is not what uh, you know, preterists or postmillennials would want to argue. They'd want to say it was really just pointing to that first one in AD 79. So on the other hand, multiple passages in prophecy um, refer to nations as mountains. We've, we saw that in, in Judges, in fact. Uh, the nations are described as mountains, and it seems best to interpret the imagery here as a symbolic, uh, it's symbolic of a great and wicked nation being overturned 
uh, by God. And it's similar to what you read in Revelation 18, 21, where the angel illustrates the destruction of Babylon as the throwing of a great millstone into the sea. So the same image is saying Babylon is like this millstone that's being tossed into the sea. It doesn't mean that the the whole nation of Babylon literally becomes a a millstone and is thrown in. It's it's describing it being overturned, it being overwhelmed by the judgment of God. So Jeremiah, in, in his prophecy, chapter 51, verse 25, referred to Babylon after after her judgment, as a burned-out mountain. And so all of these figures of speech convey God's power over wicked nations. I think that's what's being described here by the second trumpet. A third of the rivers, then, is described in the third trumpet, verses 10 through 11. You have the great star Wormwood that fell from heaven and corrupted a third of the rivers and springs of water, causing many people to die. It's unlikely that this is referring to a literal meteor, a star falling from sky and affecting a third of the world's freshwater supply. And that's what we would have to envision here is this star, a meteorite, coming and having such a... That, I mean, if it impacted a third of the freshwater supply, do you think anything would survive? Right, if a meteor had that much strength and power? So some dispensationalists, well, they, they say, they have suggested that it depicts the Chernobyl disaster. And you can look it up, Chernobyl and Wormwood and you'll have some fun. Okay, Chernobyl disaster happened in 1986, Soviet Union. They said Chernobyl is the Ukrainian word for wormwood, which isn't quite precise, but it's close. So you have Chernobyl representing wormwood, and they say it must be describing what happens here. But it's hard to understand how Chernobyl, which was a nuclear eruption, has anything to do with a star falling from heaven. And the way they interpret the, the water supply being tainted is because when the, the radiation got into the air and the rain descended, that's when it, that's when it affected their supply of water was, was through the rain. But again, that, that doesn't seem to be what's being described here. Right? A third of the rivers are affected. And so this kind of interpretation might be fun, but it's, it's awfully imprecise you could really, I mean, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got that much freedom with a passage, then you could, you could come up with a lot of ways to explain it. And it, I think it's distracting from the main idea. When we read about wormwood in Scripture, it is almost always about the same thing. It's, about, uh, it's used as a metaphor for bitter suffering. It was a bitter plant. A bitter, uh, the taste of it was bitter. So you, you use wormwood to describe the bitter pain of suffering. You can look at Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah prophesied that God would feed lying prophets bitter food, that he would feed them wormwood and poisoned water. He says that in Jeremiah chapter 9 and 23. In Proverbs 5, Solomon warns his son about the adulterous woman who is bitter as wormwood. I'd stay away from her. So rather than expecting a meteorite to wipe out a third of our water supply, we should expect the witness or we should expect to witness the judgment of God's enemies, which results in bitter suffering throughout this age. How do you explain the suffering we experience in this world? You cannot do it apart from understanding God's revelation. And lastly, in verse 12, you have a third of the sun. Precisely here, it's a third of the sun, moon, and stars. 
But as we compare that with the bowls, we'll see there in the bowls that it's specifically referring to the sun. But a third of the sun, moon, and stars here were struck so that a third of their light was darkened. And again, the ninth plague that affected the Egyptians was darkness. So the illusion does not imply a literal fulfillment of this trumpet any more than was likely with the first three trumpets. The sixth seal depicted a black sun, a a moon that is covered by sackcloth and stars, all the stars, falling to the earth. That's what's described in the sixth seal in chapter 6. So at the very least, we would understand that this fourth trumpet must happen before that that sixth seal because there's still stars in the sky. The sun is still shining. It hasn't been darkened yet. So if the sun, moon, and stars are shining at all, this judgment must precede the final judgment that's pictured in the opening of the sixth seal. And according to Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord is marked by the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. So all of this, again, is symbolic language of that final judgment. This would make sense why it's partial here. Why it's only a third. It's only a third of the sun, a third of the moon, because that judgment is partial until we get to the final judgment. Okay, so while unsealed believers are judged, believers had been sealed for protection from the harm that impacts the earth or the sea or the trees. That was the promise in chapter 7, that the saints, the church militant that was described in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, that they would not be harmed when the earth, the sea, and the trees are harmed, that they would be protected. So Greg Bill says this, all four trumpets have in common that they affect three parts of the created order. The parts that are struck suggest the basic content of creation being systematically undone. Though not in the same order as Genesis 1, the elements affected are light, air, vegetation, sun, moon, stars, sea creatures, and humans. The notion of decreation is supported by the fact that the apocalypse climaxes in new creation. And what do we see at the end of Revelation? It's a new creation. So what has been created good is now being decreated by judgment. So we might conclude that there's nothing encouraging to say at this point. Each trumpet brings a blast of further destruction But Revelation depicts the victory of the Lamb. As the vision unfolds with greater detail of the judgments that occur during the present age, we have to keep in mind God's sovereign purpose. How does this passage reveal God's purpose in the last days? Well, God cleanses the corruption of creation by bringing an increasing amount of judgment upon it. As this world becomes increasingly uninhabitable, we, the people of God, look forward to a new creation, a new earth that has been cleansed of corruption. So the same Lord who formed creation must cleanse creation of its corruption. Each blast of the trumpet represents that systematic process of decreation. The judgment that follow, the judgments that follow undo the work of creation. So decreation is a result of sin. And that's why we started there, the result of sin, including our original sin and all actual sins that we ourselves commit as a result of that original sin. 
Paul teaches in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, that by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Yet what makes Christianity different than every other religion is that it is also through the blood of the cross. It is through the creator that we find redemption. Reconciliation occurs because the Son of God died upon the cross. The one by whom all things were created was himself decreated by his death on the cross. In order that those who were alienated from God because of their evil deeds could be brought near to him. Colossians 1.22. So believers, first of all, decreated by their own rebellion and sin against their maker have been recreated into the image of his son by faith so that they might be presented in heaven holy and blameless before God. In this light, or in light of that truth, we hear the summons of the trumpets to report for duty. Right? Even as the Lord slowly but surely removes the corruption of the world through judgment, his spirit is slowly and progressively transforming us into the creatures that he intends us to be. And so let us submit to his lordship and let us walk by faith in the righteous garments that we have washed in the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that describes judgment that we ourselves deserve. As we look at the judgments that are carried out upon those who live in rebellion against you, we recognize that our own sin places us in that category and that we deserve that same treatment. We deserve your wrath. And yet you sent your son to live the life that we could not live, to live in perfect obedience to the law in our place so that he might also die in our place and take the punishment that we deserved and put an end to your wrath on our behalf so that as you pour out your wrath upon this world, we are not ourselves experiencing that wrath, but we are being refined. We are being purified. We are washing our garments in the blood of the Lamb. We are being prepared for that final judgment where where we will hear you say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Lord, we long for that day. But help us in the meantime to fight. Help us to be prepared to respond to the blast of your trumpet, to gather for battle, to be prepared for all spiritual attacks And even those physical attacks against your church, Lord, be with your persecuted church. Protect them. Allow them to be strengthened even now and to thrive in the face of persecution. Lord, grow and increase your church, showing your sovereign power over wicked men. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.